From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. If you can get people aligned by the strategic framework, and then what are the elements in that framework? It makes it much easier for people to be behind what you're going to go do. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. Today, my guest is Barry Maines, Chief Operating Officer at Malwarebytes. On today's show, Barry makes a compelling case for why spending a few years as a bartender is one of the best ways to prepare for a career in sales. It's that kind of lateral thinking that's made Barry an incredibly successful sales executive and an all-around fun guy to talk to. But behind Barry's humorous anecdotes, there's some serious wisdom. In the next few minutes, Barry breaks down the essence of customer value creation. He lays out a simple but compelling framework for up-leveling a sales organization and explains why he trusts his kids with any person he hires. Let's jump into the conversation. Barry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And uh, thank you for having me, Justin. I love to have native San Franciscans on the show because they are so rare. I too was born in San Francisco. So we got to represent when we get the opportunity. You were born in San Francisco. I want to hear about what it was like back in the day for Barry growing up in San Francisco. Give us kind of the picture of what was going on. Yeah, Justin, you're exactly right. Um, I often ask people um, when I you know go in, in all hands, and I guess it's been a little while since a true all hands, and you have an audience, and you ask people, you know, hey, how many people have been the barrier for a year? How many people have been here for two years? And if you say how many people were born here, it's like out of six hundred people, it's like zero. It's like me. So uh, not very common. Uh, most people are from somewhere else. San Francisco, believe it or not, as you know, Justin had quite a few people. Even then, so it was fairly dense. I loved growing up there. Um, I grew up um, very close to my grandparents and great grandparents, half Italian, half Spanish. So it was terrific food and loud voices growing up. So uh, yeah, that was sort of what I lived with and um, spent a lot of time, as you know, uh, post there too. But uh, yeah, it was a great place to, to grow up in. All right. So I know sales and marketing is in your blood. You mentioned your grandparents. I think they were, they gave you your first shot at sales and marketing. Tell us a little bit about that. I, as you know, uh, we talked about this, um, mentioned that my um, grandmother owned Italian bakeries. And so we spent a lot of time as both my parents worked and sort of grew up in this blue collar work ethic um, family. So we would stay oftentimes stay with my grandparents. And so my grandfather was a firefighter. So we'd have, you know, four days on, three days off so he could stay there. And in this particular day, I remember uh, going to my um, grandmother's uh, bakery and you go in the, the kind of the mid to later afternoon, no one's there because it's you're going to pick up your pastries for dinner or dessert, and you have your pastry for coffee in the morning, and there's that lull. And so she said, hey, my brother's name is Richard. So he said, hey, Barry, Richard, you know, you guys stay here. I'm going to the bank. And I think I was somewhere seven, and my brother was nine. You know, you can run me in the store. And she said, hey, we've got some incentive here for you if you can get rid of all these cookies here, because you don't want to have day-old cookies because, you know, you, the people don't like day-old cookies. So, you know, sell these cookies. I'll give you each, each $5. So back then, $5 is a lot. I'm thinking, this is fantastic. So she leaves, and my brother and I quickly come up with this scheme. Hey, what if we sold these five for one? We pull a little sign out there. 
She said nothing about how much you have to sell them for. So we put that sign up there. We sold them like hotcakes. We hadn't finished off and we sold them like hotcakes. So that's the first I learned about sort of sales and marketing works. And a good offer is, is killer. So the second thing is, is that we got down and there was a mountain pile of cookies in. There were some left over. My brother's like, hey, Barry, go in the back and eat the rest of these cookies because we're not going to finish them and get our five bucks. So I'm in the back room, you know, chowing down these cookies. And my grandmother comes in and she's looking and she goes, what are you doing? You're not supposed to eat those things. You know, I'm not paying you. And that's when I learned about ethics. So, you know, I learned quickly that, you know, hey, you needed to do things honestly. Um, so that was sort of my first sales and marketing and uh, ethics story from growing up. The five for one offer. Why didn't we think about that? Five <laughs> seats for the price of one. I think you've stumbled <laughs> upon something there. I, I, yeah, I've, I've used those sort of uh, promos. Although, you know, they weren't biscottes, uh, cookies. They were you know, some sort of software, I'm sure. I could just see you in the back office taking care of business, just slamming those cookies as fast as you can. Yeah, exactly. And I love it. By my grandmother, who was, you know, semi yelling and she was kind of cranky. I knew she was upset because, you know, it was half Italian, half English. So, uh, you know, I knew I was in trouble at that point. So your grandfather was a, a firefighter. What was it like growing up in a, in a firefighting family? It was great. So my grandpa was like my hero. You know, um, he was um, the, the fire chief. So when we got to go there, it was, um, and he had a, the, the, the act, well, he was actually at, at two uh, stations and the one, you know, particularly spent a lot of time was over off army street. So it's three stories and had the pole, we slide down the pole and, and hang out there. I mean, it was really, really, really great. And, um, I remember one time that we were there and so, you know, sort of, we do the handoff, you know, my grandfather, you know, took us and my grandmother was supposed to pick us up and then take us home. And she said, Hey, I'm going to be a few minutes late. So we're at the firehouse. And they got a call at that time. So, you know, I remember, you know, all of the kind of commotion going on and then they take off and there's a guy and I still remember his name. His name is Carlos, stayed back to watch us. And so um, Carlos, you know, we asked him, he said, like, wait a second, aren't you supposed to go? We're old enough. And they're like, oh, no, you're probably not old enough to sit in the firehouse or we'd be getting a lot of trouble if you guys did something here. And he goes, look, we're all family here. You know, it's part of, you know, kind of the deal when you're in the firehouse is to, to be part of a family. And that's actually stuck as kind of stayed with me. I mean, I even have this thing that I say when I'm hiring people or I talk about what the right culture is, is that, you know, I want to hire people I can trust with my kids. And that's like building that family or the team that that people feel it. So that was, God, that was when you know, I was back, you know, under 10 years old back then. That's a great uh, litmus test to use, a, a great cultural fit. We've, I've had a lot of guests on and they talk about ways that they assess someone from a cultural perspective, but I'm going to definitely going to remember that one. All right. So you, your work ethic, tell me where your work ethic came from. You know, sort of growing up in a, you know, kind of Italian, you know, household, you, you, you work all the time. And I don't know, you know, when it was six, seven years old, something like that. You know, I'm watching cartoons and Scooby-Doo or whatever's on there. And my brother and I are sitting there and my dad's like, you know, hey, guys, you have to go to work here. And um, like, oh, God. And so we would do stuff like either have to go and, you know, load a bunch of logs into, you know, the you know, the neighbor's, you know, kind of uh, truck. And I just remember this one time, which was like, oh, that you say, like, oh, yeah, let's, you know, and the other thing about this is that, you know, my dad was really mechanical and good at stuff. So it was nothing was off limits. And so this time we had a problem with our sewer was backing up. Oh, we'll go dig a hole and we'll go fix it. So my brother and I are out there digging around in trench and sewer, sewer water. It's like all over the place. And it was sort of like, you know, at that point in time, I, I realized, you know what, um, this is really hard work. We were met. This is what we were messy. We had to hose each other off outside. And I remember the one thing that I learned from that is that 
So to the postscript is, I don't know, maybe when I was in my 20s, I asked my dad, dad, why'd you make us do that? He goes, I wanted to make sure you guys knew that, you know, if you didn't get an education and didn't strive for better things, these are the kinds of jobs you're going to have to go do. So it was a really good lesson. I mean, I didn't want to do that. There was no way I was digging ditches and there was no way I was fixing, fixing sewer pipes. So I really realized that um, quickly. So that was the first and the last. This is like dirty jobs with Barry here. Yeah, that's exactly this, right. This that, I don't know how you get any dirtier than that. <laughs> I watched that program and I'm like, you know, I, it, it, you haven't dug a, a, a messy sewer connection. Um, go do that. That's pretty dirty and messy. Well, so I'm going to wait for the sewer line to break. I'm going to take my kids out there. That is the secret to success, Barry, that, that I have been waiting for. Perfect. Yeah. I'm not sure you could do that now. I'm sure that uh, your neighbors, uh, you know, when they heard the, uh, <laughs> the moaning and complaining outside, uh, that might get you in trouble. All right. So no more sewer jobs for you. What about in college? What, what was your favorite job in college? Bartending. Really enjoyed bartending. You know, I could, could work there. You know, I liked the atmosphere. I could make a lot of money. It was great. I really enjoyed it. I'm going to I'm going to ask kind of a random question here, but I always find there's a surprising insight. Did you learn anything as a bartender that you actually use today in your career? Absolutely. You want to be right or rich? It's <laughs> right or rich. You want to be right or rich. And, you know, when you're dealing with the public, you know, you get a lot of cranky people that come in. Your goal is to say, hey, I want to make sure they have a terrific experience. And my goal is that they buy as much as they can and that they will, if they're happy, they give a higher tip. And, you know, I was paying my way through college. So, you know, I, I put the being right on the back burner and it was really about giving them a terrific, you know, experience so that they would um, not only buy more uh, drinks, but also I would get a better tip as a result. You know, you're right. I, as I think about it, you're going to, you're going to talk to so many people. You're going to see so many different folks come through there that this loop is reinforced. If you treat the people right, they're going to treat you right. And there's just this pattern matching that must That's right. And you know, you don't know what people, what's happening with people. And I think the other thing you learn is I remember I, uh, one story where this person at the end of the bar and he was pretty grouchy. And, you know, I went over there and I mean, wasn't, he was pretty rude to the people there at the, that were the hostess and came there and he kind of looked down and he didn't acknowledge me. He said, Hey, beer or whatever. I came up to say, Hey, are you okay? You know, look, you, you need anything? Are you, you all right? And he just said, he goes, look, my mother passed away. He wow. said, look, I don't know how to handle it. And I'm really sorry. I've, I've been rude, but you know, you never know what's going on with people. And, you know, that guy became one of, you know, my best customers. I actually, you know, you know, knew him for a long time. He helped me with one of my, my, uh, you know, kind of first references for a job, but you know, you never know what people are going through. And so it's so easy to say hey, that person is being mean or whatever. It's like, you can show a little empathy. You can kind of listen and be a good person. I mean, it goes a long way. So you got your priests, your therapists, and your bartenders. Those are <laughs> three I people. I think your hairstylist, right? That's the other one. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I got to imagine too, um, you know, there, there was the old show cheers, like everybody just wants to be known. Everybody yeah. wants to be remembered. That's right. And, and if they feel that way, it, it changes things. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, look, um, life's difficult. And I think, you know, just kind of looking it through your own lens is not always the right way to do it. And so you're exactly right. People want to be known. People want to be connected with. And I think that helps a lot. All right. So uh, so you've had you've had so far a great run from a career perspective. You fixed sewers, been a bartender. How'd you actually break into sales for the first time? So my first sales job um, was with a company called Compact Microelectronics. And so it's not the Compact Computer. They're called Synax now. So, you know, they're third largest distributor in the world. So they sell peripherals and 
they have a whole bunch of contract uh, manufacturing that they do. I think they make a bunch of the computers for um, Lenovo and HP and things like that. So they're pretty, pretty massive now. And that was my first job. I was selling hard drives, 40 megabyte hard drives and disk drive controllers and, you know, EGA and VGA controllers, if that makes any sense. I'm probably dating me a bit, but, you know, that's what, that's what I sold to the, you know, reseller channel in, um, in California, actually in Fremont area. What was the secret to being successful in that line of work? Oh God. You know, I learned that, um, price is only one component of value. And so when you're selling in a, in a distribution, it, you know, it appears everything is price, but there's also value there because, you know, look, they've got to compete. And I think the trick was what I learned was how do I get a few more percentage points? Because you're, you're selling such high volumes that if I can go from, you know, kind of five points average margin and, and go up to 12 points, you know, that was a big increment in the profit or how much I could make because I got paid on, on margin. And so, you know, it was really thinking about what was important to the people. Maybe a little bit about what their outcomes were. Um, and, you know, I just have this saying that I, I kind of think about is that people go to the maybe the the home improvement center to um, build a or to buy a shovel. I think you have to think about it. They go there because they have to dig a hole. So mm-hmm. we can kind of think about what that hole is or what the value is. Um, I think you could, you know, figure out how many more points of margin you could go get. And, you know, I really learned a lot about that. And, you know, look, you can't gouge them. But if you thought about value, you could be more successful for sure. So thinking about building, digging a hole as opposed to buying a shovel, what was the hole that those hard drive buyers were trying to fill? And, and what unique thing did you do to eke out a couple extra margin points? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. So in the old days, they used to have, um, the drives had to be formatted. So you could either, you know, go and you get this sector map and you'd have to plug it into this application, or you could go provide them. Um, a detailed map with um, sort of some code that could help them reformat the hard drive or format the hard drive maybe an hour faster. And so, you know, I was looking, I spent time, and this is the other thing is that, you know, if you spend time where the money changes hands and you start to, to spend time and understand them, you might understand what that value was. And so, you know, I asked one of the, one of our customers at the time, he said, Hey, if you guys can give me this little map, man, it's worth five points to me. This saves me, you know, 45 minutes of time. This is worth that. And so I went back and I told our my boss at the time and we put to, put that together and you know it was successful. I said you want it with or without the map. I give you you know what? I could give you that price but you're not going to like it because you're not going to get the map. And you know we'd ultimately have some sort of a you know conversation and you know we get the the higher margin. I mean it was again it wasn't gouging but it was, you know 4 or 5 points, 6 points it made it just different. to be just to be clear when you say the map is this like a piece of paper with with the information on it? Yeah. For each drive. <laughs> I love it. You know, a, a simple piece of paper, tape it to the front, nail, yeah. nail additional margin. But to your point, if you spend the time with the customer, that that was the painful moment for them. You had a solution. It didn't matter if it was a Xerox piece of paper with some, some information on it. To them, that represented a couple extra hours per hard drive. That's right. And yeah. they're putting together, they make money on how many computers they can sell and put together. and you know, they could always make, you know, kind of think about outcomes and what they could make money, more profit, that kind of thing. You were also at Sun. I want to spend a couple minutes on just some of the lessons learned there. A guy named uh, Alan Patty, I think it was, aka the Y Man. Who was Alan and how did he get his name? Yeah. So Alan ran um, all of uh, sales and marketing for JavaSoft. So um, I started at Sun and I got to tell you, it was the biggest bait and switch in the world. 
So I went and interviewed at Sun Microsystems and these beautiful offices. And I think the first time I was there, I got to order a Jamba Juice on this kiosk. And I saw the gym and I was really jazzed. And the first day I come to work at Javasoft, it was in this beat up moldy building over by in Cupertino, you know, 20 miles away from the campus I interviewed at. And it's like, God, what happened to this place? And um, they had quickly realized they needed to be put into a non-campus office because they were a wholly owned subsidiary since they were selling to Sun's arch rivals like IBM, Microsoft, and HP and alike. So uh, that was that was interesting. And and I started, by the way, Justin, I started the first day JavaSoft or Sun put the Java development kit or the JDK on the web. And I'm walking by in the hallway and, um, you know, the uh, guy, the, you know, the, he was a data center guy, comes ripping out and his hair's on fire. And we quickly learned that their E10K crashed. So it's a mainframe, mainframe. And it was because it had a million concurrent connections for people downloading. So, you know, I knew at that point in time, you know, Sun had done something pretty amazing and, you know, um, beautiful, under, wonderful time there. And, you know, I, my boss was um, reported to Alan Patty and we used to sit there in these meetings and, and Alan used to always ask why. And we used to tease him a little bit about being the why man, but he used to say, you have to ask why three times at least. And he'd give examples like, you know, if you're talking to a customer and they say, hey, it's really important to me to have the Java development kit. So why is it so important? The person would say, well, you know, I want to be able to write my code and run it any, everywhere. Well, why is that important? And it's important because then I don't have to debug everywhere. And they say, well, why is that so important? Because that can save a ton of time. And that time's worth this. And then they start going on their own and they just sold themselves. And so, you know, if you kind of think about that, you know, we oftentimes don't ask why that's important to understand their perspective. And it was really valuable at that. So I've taken that to to heart and I think you have to be, you know, a little bit clever on how you ask why, because if you keep asking why, that sounds a little obnoxious, but it's really about, so what, what, what's important about that or why is that important? You can kind of get that. But, you know, I think that was really great. I mean, man, that was like Rome in the Renaissance working for JavaSoft. I mean, we went zero to 50 million the first year. The next year was 250 million. And so it was a really great experience. And um, I really uh, enjoyed uh, my days there. Yeah. I mean, that was really uh, a turning point in technology. And it's so great to hear those stories. We take things for granted, like the internet, like the cloud, but there was a time when that didn't exist. And when you have those moments where, you know, servers crash because there's so much demand for it, you you realize this is this is a huge new frontier that we're about to That's explore. exactly right. I mean, we yeah. you know, a million concurrent connections. I mean, like nobody has a million employees, right? You think about it. I mean, you, you know, systems weren't built for that. You know, they were, you know, they weren't built for the ubiquity of, you know, the concurrent connections of, you know, the internet. So it was pretty special. And, you know, again, like I said, it was a terrific time for uh, um, technology in, in, in my life and my career as well. My guest today is Barry Maines, Chief Operating Officer of Malwarebytes. Let's take a quick break. Welcome back to my conversation with Barry Maines, COO of Malwarebytes. Let's dive back in. What about Mercury? Uh, I know you were at Mercury for a while. What's the big takeaway from that company? Yeah, so I worked there for uh, just gone nine years, and um, it was great, great experience. Um, I joined there when you know we were you know under 100 million, I think 30, 40 million, and wrote it up to 1.2 billion, and so it was great. And and you know I really appreciated um, the culture there. You know there was a couple things where we used to have this you know hey let's let's focus on the the critical few, and you know we had some sayings like. Uh, in the huddle, 
free to say. So it's okay to be able to be as critical as possible. Um, do whatever you have to do, do to, to be, you know, kind of a confrontational, but out of the huddle, run the F and play. So once we're out of the, out of the, that huddle, you know, once we decided we're running it, right? No, no, uh, no dissension, you know, no passive aggressive behavior. And, you know, if it didn't work, if we built the right, you know, culture about, Hey, if you failed, okay, great. Let's come back and, and redo it. It was fine. But, you know, I think that really created, um, for me, a great opportunity to kind of think about how do you stay focused? How do you measure things? You know, let's, let's let the spreadsheets do the talking. I think that was, you know, you'd be fact-based and talk about, you know, what are the, the results? And again, if you can teach your team to, to, it's okay to, to, to fail or make mistakes and then come back and, and, uh, you know, kind of figure out where we need to go. Um, you could learn and move faster and be, be more successful. You certainly could beat the pants off the competition. And, um, you know, Mercury was a super successful company. And I know there's a lot of my friends and things that, you know, I'm, I still consider friends that went off to do some terrific things that uh, were ex-Mercury uh, alum. There is certainly something to be said about the discipline of effective execution. So many people overlook that or at least discount the importance of that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the company that is executing with discipline, executing and, and able to scale that that ultimately wins the day. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and also you have to have the, you know, humility to say, hey, we might make a mistake. There's no book written of, you know, whatever product that we were rolling out. Um, hey, can I go look, refer to the, the, the manual here because it's been done before? You know, you're, you're working in ambiguity. So, you know, you need to be able to, to, to know where, you know, as they say, the furniture is, you know, and know how to navigate around it if you, you know, you're, you're blind in certain areas. Yeah. Um, I wanted to spend a little bit of time also on your experience at Wind River. You got, you got pulled in to do a pretty tough job there. Kind of a remarkable turnaround story. Tell us what was going on and how you approached the problem. Yeah, so I I went followed one of my my mentors and and boss Ken Klein, who was also one of the ex uh, Mercury alum. You know, I was I, I would joke with him if he was right here too, but probably um, not sure. I I got the, the 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 he did a great sales job. Let's just put it that way. And and I and and all jokes aside, I I I wanted to do or make a transition in my career from you know pure selling because um, I was I had the corporate sales or inside sales. Um, engine there um, at Mercury Interactive um, when we were doing 40% of the billion dollar transactions. And I wanted to say, hey, how do I how do I expand my career? I want to do more than just sales. So I landed at Wind River and Ken said, hey, you know, we're, we're about $160 million. We're, you know, growing. Um, I need someone to come up and fix some business problems I have. And if you can fix those business problems, um, I can, you know, you, you got a path to COO. And so, you know, I was able to come in and I was given a couple of different um, tasks. I, I remember I was given uh, first was to fix customer uh, support. Our customer SAT scores were less than 60. So they were horrible. Um, and, you know, come in and, and figure out how you turn that around. So, I mean, that was the big, big task and sort of the test that I came in. And I had never run support before, uh, but it was, hey, here you go. You know, you want to do something great. Now go do this. How did it turn out? And, and what was the approach that you took when you were tackling that? Yeah. So I, you know, I used a lot of what I learned, which was, Hey, let's go, you know, unpack it and look at the facts. Let's uh -huh. try and understand why. Um, let's go, um, talk to where uh, money's exchanging hands. So let's go talk to customers, partners. And so I had my team. Let's go, you know, divvy up and everybody go talk to some customers, um, that had given us some bad scores. And then we did some cohort analysis to say, okay, you gave us a bad score, a score. You gave us a score. 
um, what do you really want us to do? You know, what do you really appreciate? And where is that right, upper right hand quadrant? And what do we do well? And, you know, if they're diametrically opposed, that's usually a problem. And then we started finding this pretty consistent theme. And, you know, it's a bit like, you know, kind of the, the, um, you know, Occam's razor, usually sometimes the, the, the most, you know, kind of the simplest thing, you know, you overlook because you want to make it complicated or as we used to say, make a lucid concept hopelessly complex. And um, especially engineers are great at that. So I had all my engineers on the team and we're like, oh, it's this and this. And we did the analysis and we found that um, customers didn't like the fact that it took them so long to get to a sport engineer. And with Wind River, we were selling to systems that were powering other things, you know, planes, trains, cars, this kind of stuff. And if they got a check engine light or they got some sort of issue, it usually was something pretty critical. And so if it took them two or three days to get to a support engineer, that was a problem. And so what we found out was, is that we were delaying and having them, hey, could, do you have your license? Just call us back with the license or call us back with verification. I immediately asked my team, okay, so out of the you know 4,000 people that we talked to over the last quarter or two, how many people didn't have, how many people were trying to you know work the system and didn't really pay for it? And it's like two people. So we immediately removed that gate, changed some of the processes and things, and our CSAT scores immediately went up. And by the, the other thing that unintended consequence, which was benefit, is that our field application engineers started being way more productive helping to sell because they weren't working on support issues. So it really, really ended up being kind of a double-edged um, benefit. And um, you know, our customer SAT scores ended up being, you know, kind of museum quality up into the, the 90s. And you know, we 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 did some really great things back then. But um, that was a really, really good um success or success for me and really happy about, you know, how it turned out. I want to actually connect some dots on that last story. So in that story, I hear Barry, the sewer repair guy, not afraid to get dirty and, and take on the really ugly, nasty jobs. I hear Barry, the bartender, the guy that has a lot of empathy for the people that he's talking to and really is able to get to the story. I hear, you know, Barry, the why man, just keeps asking why till you get to the, the root cause. And then I also see that operator, um, the appreciation that you had for being able to just run the plays in a, in a systematic way. It's really remarkable how all of these jobs kind of stacked one on top of, a, of, of another to ultimately set you up to be successful in that most recent role. And, you know, I didn't think I was going to a psychiatry session, Justin, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you did a nice job of summing that up. That's uh um, yeah, I can connect the dots too. I didn't really think of it that way, but, uh, you know, I think you're a process or a, you know, kind of subject of your experiences and that, uh, certainly the, that's a good, nice way of summing those things up. Yeah. All right. So you, you've had a lot of experience now you run sales organization, sold COO, mobile iron, your next yeah, so, stop, you become a CEO. Yeah. And so, um, I, um, was at, uh, um, wind river then we sold to Intel. And um, I ended up running the Intel operation, 2,000 people and 500 million bookings. And um, I mean, it was great. Intel was fantastic. Learned some great things about Intel and in their culture and things. I really appreciated. Um, but, you know, when the new CEO came in, um, he was like, we don't do software. Why do we have these assets? We're a hardware company. And, you know, I don't blame him. I think it's perfectly, you know, understandable. And you can see what happened to McAfee and, you know, Wind River, et cetera. They're no longer part of Intel. But suffice it to say, you know, it wasn't like a good career thing for me. I mean, I really want to be in the hardware side. I wasn't a hardware guy. 
So um, I was approached um, to go and help um, turn around Mobile Iron. And Mobile Iron was a high flyer um, and then sort of hit a pothole where um, they had had two code bases on-prem, which got them the museum quality customer list and cloud. And cloud was growing super fast and two code bases, you know, and, you know, a 900 person company, you know, your, your LTV CACs will be a little messy because of the, the, the costs associated with acquiring customers because you don't have all the features. And so there was a, um, a lot of things, but I felt, look, I could apply my skills and come in and help turn that around. And, you know, sort of worst case, we could sell the company off. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. So how did it all, how did it all end up, and, and what was the big lesson you took away from that? Yeah, so I actually had two, two lessons here. I'm thinking about one. One was... You know, um, I did my first panel. I'll give you a kind of a, a, a simple one and I'll give you a more, maybe a, a one that's um, a little bit more nuanced. Um, first one's pretty simple. So I remember I had this first panel discussion with um, some customers and it was at one of the events. And um, I made the, the rookie mistake, the rookie mistake, Justin. And I'm going to tell you this, you know, that's going to be the, I set all the candidates early off all the questions. And um, so some of the, not candidates, the, our, our partners and customers. And, you know, I got a sneaking suspicion because many of them knew each other. And I found out later in the bar, this is what happened. They started like, okay, so comparing notes on the questions and stuff. And then when it finally came around to do the, you know, kind of more of a candid, I wanted to kind of have a little bit of uh, contention there. It sounded like it was all canned. It sounded horrible. Uh And so, you know, I learned quickly, hey, if you want spontaneity, you want it to be sort of planned, maybe you want to have some, you know, confrontation or constructive confrontation probably don't do that and maybe have a better job of picking the candidates. So I did learn that and certainly won't do that again. And then the other piece I learned, which was, like I said, a little more nuanced is, you know, I should have gone back to the Alan Patty why, but I didn't spend enough time, I think, with some of the board members on why. And it's important to understand, you know, when someone's part of a board, if they have a lot of shares, what's in it for them? What do they care about? Is it LPs? Is it customers? Is it shareholders? How do they, how are they motivated? Um, and, you know, my sense is that had I understand it, stood that dynamic or spend a little more time on that, I probably could have coalesced um, the team a little faster. And, yeah. you know, we got to a point on, you know, whether or not the company should be sold or for how much, and we didn't get a vision match. And I probably could have figured that out earlier if had I had I understood the dynamics. And so, you know, I think it's helped me in my career. I am much more ruthless about some of these things and about key decisions and whether or not, I don't want to say you should trust, but trust, but verify, or as we used to say, you know, don't expect anything you don't inspect. And um, I probably put a little more rigor on that kind of thing. Those lessons that are drummed into our heads as salespeople, to your point, are just as important, if not more important, when we're thinking about the careers that we want to jump into. Same process. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think people sometimes feel, I mean, look, what we do in technology, it's hard. I mean, like, you know, the, 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 the notion that every company is Rome in the Renaissance. I mean, you know, hey, there's been times in the, you know, quarters, there's been years where we know is, you know, smooth or probably doing a lot better than you should. Or, you know, a rising tide floats all boats, like in the dot-com era, where, you know, if you could fog a mirror, you could sell, you know, these kinds of things. 
Um, and then it got harder. And so being able to understand those dynamics and understand that, you know, hey, if you have a, a discipline and an acumen, um, it'll help you make decisions to change before you have to change because then it's too late. And then you're in a point where, you know, you're desperate and you're hoping that, you know, you're hoping you stop before you hit the guardrail. Yeah. Uh, let me shift gears a little bit. In my experience, great leaders all have frameworks. It's just a way to help them structure their thinking and dive in and immediately deliver impact. What are what are the frameworks that you use as you dig into a business and, and start to manage and direct it? Yeah. So at the high level, you know, I've got this what I call a spark framework. Um, and it's strategy, people, alignment, routines, and culture. And it helps come in and, you know, sort of assess the lay of the land and make sure people are on the same page. You know, start with, hey, what is, you know, what is our strategy? And this could be the company. It could be a team. And so, you know, making sure that the team's got the proper strategy and understands the activities that help you hit the strategy. Um, and then, you know, people would be, hey, we've got people. We got to put your people with the strategy. Because oftentimes you have a situation, Justin, I'm sure you've experienced this, where, hey, you've got a strategy and you're, you're charging one direction, but the people and the organization isn't aligned behind you. So I think it's the people because I think the organization is really the executive toolbox to help um, execute on the strategy. And then it's the alignment, like telling people, you know, where you're going to go and how do you get them aligned? Hey, do you have OKRs? And what are those OKRs? And do they make sense? Do you communicate them? That kind of thing. And then it's like, well, once you've done this, it's like, what's the how? Like, how do you, you know, execute? What routines do you put in place? Like forecasting, like demand gen, like, you know, uh, what are the statistics and, and key measurements to look at success? And, you know, do you have a routine for the new product introduction process? And how does that work, right? You put these routines together and make sure people know them. They're like the plays. Here's our play. We're going to run it and play sports. Here's our play. Down and outs, down and out. <laughs> Nobody, you know, there's no confusion. And then that's the culture. And I think, you know, I believe my personal point is I think culture, um, people underestimate that and underestimate the power of if you have a bad culture or a negative culture um, or a culture that doesn't engender, you know, kind of what you're trying to hit from the other um, key initiatives and things. So that's the framework put together. I use it with my team. Um, it's a good way to, to articulate what they are. And then I have, you know, you can actually think if you closed your eyes, you could kind of think, hey, here's our strategy. Okay, you've got your, you know, your two or three slides on that. Here's, you know, the org structure, the people, and then you've got the alignment. So I feel that framework's really been, helps me when I'm thinking about, hey, how we, you know, go from insight to execution with the team. There's definitely an order to that as well. You need to know what the strategy is to make sure you've got the right people. Once you have the people, you got to get them aligned. That's and it. then once they're all aligned on the mission... Okay, here's the routine we're going to use, and then there's a culture that comes out of that. I want to I want to spend a little bit more time on the S and the C. When you think about building strategy, what? How do you define strategy, and how do you go about establishing a strategy? So, strategy is just a set of tactics that helps you hit your vision mission. Okay, so you know we can think about what key things you need to go do in order to be successful, or whatever success looks like. I do feel that's why people do vision mission first or what does success look like first? Because strategies helps you with a, a very succinct blueprint on how to get there. And, you know, I think it's sometimes people try and make strategy more complicated in terms of a framework, but that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you can get people aligned by um, the strategic framework and then what are the elements in that framework, 
it makes it much easier for people to be behind what you're going to go do much, much, much easier. I think, I think sometimes we overestimate the importance of a comprehensive end to end strategy and we underestimate the importance of just allowing people to remember what it is. That's right. If you've got hundreds, if not thousands of people all walking around saying, I know what the strategy is. It makes sense. I know how my job links to it. So much more impactful oh, than yeah. if you've thought about every corner case. Yeah. I heard a really good thing. We had a, a professor come in and talk about um, strategy while I was at Intel. And she said, hey, if you need to make a strategy s- simple enough where you know your grandmother could go and recite it, it can't be overcomplicated because then your organization's not going to get it. So keep it, keep it simple, but, you know, maybe elegantly simple. And that's the, that's the challenge, right? That, that, that the people have. And so I can't, couldn't agree with you more because that just helps you get people on board and get get aligned. I'll, I'll apply that also in the world of sales. I remember before I went into sales myself as a product marketer, I would get so frustrated because I felt like I would sit the sales team down. I'd share the new information about the products. They got emails. They got live training. It was on. And inevitably, you get the question from the sales team, hey, what are we doing about this? And I'm like, I've just explained that like <laughs> 10 different ways. Do we have a communication problem here? What I learned though, when I went into sales, it's not that, you know, it's not that these people can't absorb information. It's that they're overloaded with information. You were one very small piece of a whole cannon of information that was thrown at them right. while they're trying to close the deal. So my litmus test is always think about that salesperson on the front line. If they're audible ready and can repeat back to you, whatever it is you're trying to say with one or two exposures, then it's at the right level of simplicity. Otherwise, right. keep working. That's right. That's a really good point. I think, you know, we we take for granted um, how much information is going to a salesperson, you know, and, and, you know, they get time slice of information or time slice of of of, of just time to go and, and spend on, okay, I'm going to go read a Justin's emails and try and digest this and put it into some format that I can, you know, either use or give to a customer. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. So I love the Spark framework. Makes sense. The C is culture. A lot of discussion about culture. What is it? How do you create it? How do you form it? How do you define culture and where does it come from? Yeah. So. You know, I think a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, if you you kind of, if you start with, let's, I always like to do this. Hey, what are our guiding principles? And if you start with starting to talk about that, you start to get a really good perspective of how they vary. Like, okay, you know, you can start a culture and it just happens organically and you can say what our guiding principles are, everything like that. But oftentimes what I'm talking about here is that you come into an organization that may have already a culture you know, do you change it? And it's really about the the kind of whether it's overt or not so overt way in which um, people go about their day and how they prosecute information and how they view success and how they interact with 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 folks and customers. And so I like always to ask people, do they even know the guiding principles and what are they? Um, and then a little bit about let, let's start to think about if we were, you know, had a magic wand and wave it around. What is an operating environment? What does a culture need to look like for us to be successful? If we take a look at what success as a company needs to be and aligning the, the, the actual, um, what we think maybe the guiding principles are and what success is. And you start to kind of think, cause there's dollar success. There's, Hey, things that you might want to have around, 
um, diversity and around inclusion, around what success looks like. And you start to build that makeup of what the face or the personality of the company is. And you start to be able to describe what that personality is based on the culture. And, you know, I feel that the personality and culture kind of go hand in hand, um, kind of different sides of the same coin. And being able to say, well, do I like that personality? Is it right for the business? Is it right for the market? Or do I not like that personality? One other topic that I wanted to drill into before we wrap up, a statement that you made, which I love, you don't manage your way to greatness, you hire your way to greatness. Talk a little bit about that and, and how you have put that into play in your own career. Yeah. So look, I, I think if you're if if you're trying to if you're trying to tell people what to do every day, you're not being a leader. I mean, I think being a leader is 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 making sure that you make sure people aligned around the strategy like we talked about and tell them, hey, here, here's the what we need to do or what the team or the customer whatever needs to do. Let them figure the how out. Let them go through that whole process. You know, they don't need me to go and tell them. I mean, they can come and get asked for, for, hey, what do you think? Bounce ideas off for sure. But look, you know, people aren't going to be happy if, if they're, they're the ones that are having to be yes people. And so I feel like if you can hire people that are smarter than yourself in areas that you are, it's not your core competency, you can go and trust them. You can empower them. A, they'll have much more fun. B, as a leader, you're going to learn way more because then you can say, hey, you know, I was an ex, wasn't an expert in, you know, kind of growth marketing and consumer, but boy, oh boy, I listened with some really smart people and I learned it. And boy, you know, I'm way better than I used to be in that. Had I not hired my way to greatness and I tried to manage it, I would have cut myself and the company short. I would have tried to do it on my own. That's not my forte. You know, so, you know, I, I'm a super, super big believer in, in making sure you hire people that have, again, are smarter than you are and, and make sure they add to the subject matter expertise of the organization. So that's the philosophy. How do you actually find those people in the process, in the interview process? What kinds of questions are you asking and what are you looking for? Well, you know, there's some subject matter expertise questions, Justin. We don't have to go into that, but it would be more, you know, kind of around what the job might be. So, you know, look, if it's, say, a frontline inside salesperson, you might ask them, hey, tell me a little bit about steps in a sales process. Not quite the same question you would ask an engineer or a growth marketer, right? It's different. So I think there's the, hey, just make sure you understand what are the four or five or six things that I can give you a pattern match on if, uh, is the subject matter expertise there. And, you know, sometimes if someone else has to go do that, right? That's, that's why, hey, like I said before, you hire your way uh, to greatness, get somebody that can do an interview that can suss out, hey, is this person, can they cut code? Can they do whatever? So there's that piece. But I think there's some other piece uh, that I really think is, is, part and parcel of success. And one is grit. So I look for grit. Um, you can go look Angela Duckworth from Stanford's talked a lot about, you know, the key contributor to people being successful is grit. And do they have the ability to cut and the tenacity to keep going? Um, the other piece is a piece of the growth mindset. So like, you know, we always say, we laugh a lot about the power of yet. It's not done yet, or we're not there yet. And, you know, people that have that optimism, because we're going to have a lot of failures, um, that having the yet, and there's lots of research around, you know, allowing people to, you know, say, we're not done yet. Give me another chance, how much and how fast they can learn over time. And so just asking people a little bit about, hey, so tell me about failures. Tell me about, you know, where you felt you were tenacious. Describe that. How do you, how many times do you have to fail at one thing uh, before you, you know, give up and this kind of thing. So I think you kind of the grit and the tenacity and that, 
that growth mindset uh, work. And then the enthusiasm. I mean, look, I want people that are enthusiastic about what they're doing because there's nothing, you know, look, you got to go to work so you can get people who are cranky about going to work and doing stuff and you get people who are not cranky. You know, I don't want the cranky ones. And it's easy to, you know, suss out and have conversations about things to go find out about that. Um, and then, you know, I like to have people that, you know, motivated by achievement. So what do they do? You know, tell me about that. How do you feel about that when you're successful? And I mean, you can just sort of hear the enthusiasm roar out of people's, you know, um, kind of mouths when they talk about some of the successful things that they've done. And, you know, I like that. You get people that want to be there. They're competitive. And probably last but not least, I do like competitive people. And it's not like over-competitive, annoying competitive. It's like, hey, you know, they have a team spirit. They'd like to win as a team, you know, and again, not win at all costs. I think that's not right. Because, But I mean, it's, you know, hey, like, do you like to beat the beans out of the competition? I do. Like, you know, I mean, I, I hate losing almost as much as I'd like to win. I mean, I don't like losing. But, you know, so we build a team to learn and constructive confrontation and, and go out there and, and, you know, do the best we can. Well, Barry, some great insights. Thank you so much for sharing the wisdom with us. I'll end on the last question, which is, as you look back over the arc of your life, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that's made the biggest difference for you? You say one. You only get one here. so I only get one. Choose okay, wisely. Well, I'm, 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 that's, that's a very good point. Choose wisely. I do feel grit is important. I learned a lot about that. And, you know, there's a lot of super smart people out there. We can all talk about how high our IQs are or whatever, um, but it really kind of, a lot of this boils down to grit and, you know, do we have the stick to and the moxie to be able to go do what we do day in, day out and um, do it in a way where people don't want to, you know, run you over if they see you in the parking lot. But I think that, you know, I'd probably boil it down to grit. Great answer. Well, Barry, again, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.